0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. The rest of us, we're going to continue in this great passage in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. As I said, I tried to zero in on a passage that corresponded to where Jesus was at in terms of his ministry just before Resurrection Sunday when he went to the cross, this is pretty close in Luke 17. And uh, it's a great, great story. This is anywhere from a few weeks before Christ's death to a few months. Not quite sure, but we definitely know it's on the tail end of his three-and-a-half-year ministry or his three-year public ministry here in Luke. Follow along as I read as Jesus is nearing the cross, nearing his death in Jerusalem. and He, he knows it. that's why he came. This was planned in eternity past. He's almost fulfilled everything that the Father has required him to do. He's gathered his 12 apostles, been training them hands-on, and has frequented Galilee and Judea and even at times Samaria. And so now he's culminating his ministry as he continues on his travels here and there as the Messiah. Starting at verse 11, While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men... Who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. What an amazing story. Not just a story, this is a true event, a true historical event. It happened exactly the way it is recorded here in Scripture. And we have the wonderful privilege of looking at this true historical event, being blessed by it. It's a story of the one and the nine and the ten and the one, the ten being the leprous men who Approached Jesus. One of these did something that nine of the other lepers didn't do. So there are definitely main characters in the story, but the ultimate main character in the story is the Lord Jesus Himself. Hence the title I put up there Jesus, Merciful Savior. Up until weeks before His death, Jesus manifested His love for sinners as He heals ten undeserving lepers in a Gentile village, illustrating once again of his mission to seek and to save those who were lost. If you would flip with me just in a couple of key Scripture passages, I want us to be reminded of why Jesus came, Jesus's main mission. In the words of Scripture, and sometimes even in the words of Jesus himself, Matthew, or flip back in the book of Luke to Luke chapter 5. Why did Jesus come? What did he preoccupy himself with? What were his priorities? How was he understood? How was he interpreted and perceived? Sometimes his greatest enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, made comments about him. They did it in mockery. Many times, their diagnosis was right on. Here's one example: Luke chapter five thirty to thirty two. The Pharisees and the scribes, keeping in mind the Pharisees. The word Pharisee meant holy one. They called themselves that. They were the holy ones. They were the elite. The special ones. The holy ones. God's privileged. The elites. So the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Why do you and Jesus always hang out with sinful, despicable, lowly people? How pathetic. Remember, these are the elite ones, the holy ones talking, who are too good for everybody else. 31. Jesus defends His disciples. The Pharisees were grumbling at His disciples, and verse 31 says, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And primarily He's talking about those who are sick with sin, and those who are sick with sin, and they recognize they are sick with sin. The Pharisees were pathetically sick with sin. They just didn't think they were. They thought they were righteous, hence they were self-righteous. And Jesus is basically saying, you don't need me. It's others who need me. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why Jesus came. He came to call sinners to repentance. Luke 15, 2, I'll just, little phrase there. Uh, Again, the Pharisees, with utter disdain about Jesus, made this comment about Him. This man receives sinners. Can you believe that? This Jesus welcomes sinners. How pathetic is that? A friend of sinners. Uh, Actually, Jesus embraced that moniker. He didn't despise it. He was a friend of sinners. He welcomed sinners. That's why He came. And then, finally, Luke 19.10. Jesus' own words. Starting in verse 9, Jesus said to him today, salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. Verse 10, for the son of man, I Jesus, have come, the son of man has come to seek and to save which was lost. Actually, I do want to highlight one more passage uh, in light of our text today, and that's Matthew 11. Again, The purpose of why Jesus came at one point, uh, late in John the Baptist's ministry, when John was thrown in prison, John began to question who Jesus was and why he came. Is he the Messiah? Here I am in jail. Boy, these plans aren't going the way I thought and I could be executed. And he did. He got his head chopped off. So John began to question, was Jesus really the Messiah? Are you really the one who was to come? And sent His disciples to go ask Jesus that. Jesus got that message and Jesus told the disciples of John the Baptist to go back and give John the news, yes, I am the Messiah. I came to fulfill the Old Testament and here is proof. I am the Messiah, the expected one, the anointed one of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 5, the proof is the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. That's That's amazing. To think about, if you knew about the disease of leprosy, the lepers are cleansed. The death here, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me, the one who is doing all these things. Why did Jesus come? This is why he came—to reach uh, the lost, to seek and to save those who are lost, to call sinners to repentance. We need to be reminded of that as we go back to Luke chapter 17. And let's go ahead and look at there. I took this story and just came up with four points that I wanted to gather our thoughts around to help us think through this text. Just want to go through it, uh, this narrative, 11 through 19, and highlight some things along the way that we can benefit from and apply to our own life and actually put into focus more than anything who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. Why did you come to church today? Well, apparently you believe in Jesus. That's why you go to church, Right? Together with the saints, other people who believe in Jesus Christ, it's all about him. He really is the priority. He is the epicenter and the circumference of all that constitutes Christianity, the church, and the Bible. And there is no greater passage. There are many great ones, but no greater ones than this that really accentuate and highlight who Jesus is. So this isn't just talking about an amazing miracle that was done in the response of one leper. This is really also accentuating the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. And if you know Him, it's your personal Savior. What a great reminder we can have from this text to refresh and renew Jesus Christ, as we were reminded in that song earlier of why He deserves all the majesty. So let's go ahead and look at it. It's a wonderful passage. And uh, the first point there about Jesus in this text that jumps out to me is that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. By virtue of a providential declaration it happens and also other events that happen here. Jesus is sovereign. That means Jesus is in control, not just in control. This is somebody, someone who's sovereign is in total control. Only God is sovereign. Uh, the word sovereign, by the way, has the word reign in it, R E I G N, reign, meaning Jesus, God, reigns as king, the all controlling sovereign king. Oops. <laughs> you can disregard that. Jesus is sovereign. Let's go ahead and look at the text, starting at verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, this is at the end of three years of ministry. He's been to Jerusalem many times. He was born and raised in the area of Galilee, and many times he'd go down at feast days and other times to go to Jerusalem. And even in his public ministry, we know of at least three different times he went there specifically for feast days. Most of the time he do miracles there and would teach and wasn't welcomed because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were threatened by him and a lot of times maybe chased out of town, almost stoned to death. So he didn't really have a welcome by those who were in charge in Jerusalem. But he knew that that was the place where he needed to culminate and finish his ministry was in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is on his last trip towards Jerusalem at the end of his ministry he knows he's going to die there and so that's why it says while he was on the way to Jerusalem he was passing between Samaria and Galilee this is so typical of Jesus he said he never had a place to lay his head he didn't really have a home once he left uh, the home of Mary and Joseph he was a a vagrant he was on the move he was on the go he never had a long-term place to lay his head many times he wasn't welcomed wherever he went So he was used to being on the road and walking and roaming. and But the amazing thing and the sovereignty that I see in the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry is that Jesus was always where he was supposed to be. And this is also true in this passage. He is exactly where he's supposed to be. And the text is so nonchalant about it that while he was on his way, but Jesus actually had a divine appointment. He knew exactly where he needed to be and he was going to be there because he had a divine appointment made in eternity past really with ten Ten men, ten who were lost and covered with disease. The Lord Jesus Himself was in control of time. The Lord Jesus Christ, get this, He created time. He was the master of time. He was the sovereign one over time. He was the one in charge. He was the one with authority. As a matter of fact, in verse 13, the lepers call Him master. Master, in the middle of verse 13, that's a unique word. Only Luke uses it. And it is a very specific word, and it does refer to someone with notable honor, notable power, and notable authority. Someone who is totally unique, and sometimes someone who was supernatural. And somehow these lepers knew that Jesus was the master, the unique one, the sovereign one, the all-authoritative one. So that designation is appropriate. They got it right. Oh, that's who Jesus is. He's the sovereign one, but he's always where he needs to be. And I don't know if you ever noticed as you read through the gospel, Jesus, he's always where he needs to be, but he's never in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. Oh, how that is unlike what goes on at our house or in my life. Flying by the seat of our pants and can't get it all done. Uh, But that wasn't true of the master. He was sovereign and he was exactly where he was supposed to be. And he has this providential meeting with these men. Who knows if he's ever even met them before. Who knows if they've ever even encountered him personally before. But he's the sovereign one. Uh, the end of verse 11, it says, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And so uh, it's kind of a strange phrase. He was between Samaria and Galilee. This is north of Judea. This is up towards uh, so the border there between Samaria and Galilee. Samaria were the half-breeds. These were Jews who intermingled with... Uh, illegitimate races of people, the Gentiles. And so they became a polluted race from the perspective of the Jews. And the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. The Jews despised Samaritans. The Jews thought that the Samaritans had cooties. John 4, 9 says that. Not cooties, but it says the Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. They were diseased. They were contaminated. They they were dirty. They were unclean. They're almost worse than Gentiles because they're major Jewish apostate compromisers. They only had half of a Bible or hardly half of a Bible. The Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. Rejected the rest of it. So they would embrace some of what Moses said. So their religion was even corrupt and polluted and syncretistic. And just a mixed hodgepodge. And so the Jews absolutely despised Samaritans. And so it was common for Jews in Galilee to go down to Jerusalem. When they traveled, they would not set foot in Samaria, in that land. They would go out of their way and go around the long way. Because if you're a Jew, a law-abiding Jew, if you stepped foot in Samaria, you got your foot dirty and you had to shake off of the cootie dust from the Samaritans. That's just their attitude. So they despised the Samaritans utterly. And salvation was not available to those who lived in Samaria. So Jesus is passing between Samaria and Galilee, kind of on the border. Jesus wasn't necessarily welcome in Galilee either because he'd been chased out of Galilee a few times. So he kind of at this point in his ministry at the end really wasn't welcome anywhere. If he went to Jerusalem, he knew he'd be killed. He'd already been chased out of there. He's He'd been chased out of Samaria at least once earlier. And he'd also been chased out of different and various cities in Galilee and many rejected him as Messiah. No wonder he's walking on the periphery and in the borders and in the alleyways of major cities and areas. And so he's passing by between Samaria and Galilee and who in the world nobody hangs out on these roads and dangerous highways and byways and in the alleys of this rough terrain, except a few people, robbers, nobodies, the scum of the earth, and lepers. Lepers were those who had a disease that was formally diagnosed by the priests of Jerusalem, and if they were diagnosed with this disease, they were, quote, put out, Of the city put out of the community put out of the people and isolated and put away and ostracized outside the city literally and they were not allowed back in if they had the disease of leprosy. So Jesus is willingly subjecting himself to be in these areas where no other people would be hanging out close to the periphery and areas where the despised lepers might be and sure enough Jesus as he's walking along the border of Samaria and Galilee making a longer Way trek back to Jerusalem where he's going to die at verse 12 it says he entered a village uh, just off of the periphery here off of the highway and as he entered the village immediately ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him what is this ten leprous men this is no doubt a leper colony a leper colony according to Leviticus 13 and 14 if you were diagnosed with leprosy you were put out of the city you were actually not supposed to associate with anybody you were a loner and so they began to have these places where the lepers would gather outside the city, and misery loves company. And so as a result, you the byproduct was you had these little groups called leper colonies, and no doubt that's what this is. These men were together. They had this horrible disease that had actually been infecting them probably for some time because it had reached a level that they had already been diagnosed, they'd already been cast out, and they were already, at the end of verse 12, it says they were at a distance. They, were at, they kept their distance. They knew as lepers they should keep their distance because that's what the law required, and they knew that's what was expected of people uh, typically in that day. If you saw a leper who had this heinous disease and you knew it was a leper, you wouldn't go to him and feel compassion and sympathy. You would run. That was after you sneered or maybe vomited and run and go the other direction. So the main thing you do when you see a leopard is you, or a leper is you avoid the leper. I want you to go back to Leviticus, uh, thir- I mean, yeah, thirteen, because I want you to see a little bit of the context of what a leper is. A leper. I remember I was introduced to what a leper was. I think in first grade, you know, religious class, and the whole time that the lady was talking for forty minutes, I thought she was talking about leopards, like in the lion, you know. <laughs> it's like I, I kind of like leopards, lady. What's your problem? We're not talking about leopards and lions. A leper is a human being with a disease called leprosy. Leviticus 13. This is amazing. Leviticus 13 and 14 just goes on for two entire chapters about the disease of leprosy. It's, it's amazing because here God is starting the nation of Israel. He's met with Moses. He's got a million or actually more than that Jews who have congregated around Moses. God gives them the law. He delineates the Ten Commandments. And then he gives them all kinds of other uh, civil and social and religious laws and even health laws and of all the health laws that God gives he only addresses the disease of leprosy of all things and he does it in great detail and that's here in Leviticus 13 to 14 so it was a severe disease it was the main disease uh, of the old testament it was the main disease of the bible to be feared and look at Leviticus 13. So early on, as God is beginning the nation of Israel, before they go into the promised land, God is warning them about this disease. This would be comparable to the black plague of Europe of the Middle Ages or of the 1980s here in America when the AIDS scare began to loom large on the horizon of the world and all the moral and other connotations that come with this disease. Those are the only two things that I could even think that come close with the stigma of what was in view here back with leprosy in Bible times. Follow along as I read in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot, many times that was the key. If you had a bright spot on your body, whether it was bright red, bright pink, bright white, many times it was on the head somewhere. could be other places, but mainly on the head. Just a strange spot you were to take warning. And if it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons, the priests. Okay, that's huge. All throughout chapter 13 and 14 of Leviticus, a key phrase. Anybody that had leprosy had to be brought to the priest. Brought to the priest. Brought to the priest. And then the priest shall do this, and the priest shall do that, and the priest shall do this. It was like 50 times that refrain is repeated. So on the days of Moses and under the economy of the Israelite nation, if you suspected leprosy, had leprosy, first and foremost, you needed to go to the priest. That's what God required. In our day and age, when we have a suspected disease, we go see the, your mother. No, the doctor. Yeah, probably first your mother and then the doctor. It's kind of interesting. They don't, they don't go see a doctor. They go see the priest. Now, the priest was not a doctor. He was like the, health examiner and he didn't do anything the priest gave no remedies but it was pretty much just get a diagnosis is it legit and then, if it was uh leprosy then he would just take action and isolate quarantine and etc but was not an acting physician uh, but that is key to know that if you had uh, a suspicion of leprosy you would go to the priest and this is true all throughout the old testament this was true even in jesus's day it was mandated that's what the law of Moses required. Verse 3 says, The priest shall look at the mark on the skin of the body, and if the hair in the affection has turned white and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is an infection of leprosy. When the priest has looked at him, he shall pronounce him unclean. And that's what the priest would do. He would examine, he would diagnose, and then he would make a proclamation. You are either clean or unclean. And then he just goes on through this procedure, and some of the procedure is Uh, You would be isolated for seven days away from everybody else, and then the priest would examine you seven days later to see if uh, the disease spread at all, or if it's still the same, or if it began to heal. If it began to heal and didn't spread, then it wasn't leprosy, and then you'd be pronounced clean, and then you'd be isolated for another seven days, and then you'd be inspected again. Ultimately, if it was determined that it was spread, because the sign of leprosy was that it would continue to spread and get worse. And raw, that's another phrase throughout chapter 13, some of the Telltale signs of leprosy, swelling, scabbing, bright spots, verse 2. Later on it goes, verse 10, talks about raw flesh, raw flesh, boils, verse 18, swelling, reddish white, bright spots, raw flesh, verse 24, sores, boils, the opening up of flesh. It would be just spread more and more around your body. It would even begin to stink, become a, a putrid smell, and if it was determined by the priest, eventually, that you indeed had leprosy. You were to be isolated out of the community. put I mean, it didn't matter your age, uh, your occupation, who you were. You were put outside the city and isolated from the entire community. Look at now Numbers chapter 5. This is a little later, but God reiterates how unclean leprosy is. As a physical disease, and God didn't want it among His people, among His camp, in His presence. Uh, Numbers chapter 5 verse 1 says, The Lord, then the Lord, or Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Command the sons of Israel, that they send away from the camp every leper. Again, didn't matter how old they were or who they were. What their reputation was. Male, female. Priest, non-priest. Child, adult. Listen to that command in verse 2. Send them away. Can you imagine if your five-year-old got leprosy that you loved? Send away. No exception. Send away outside the camp, isolated, by themselves. Send them away from the camp. Every leper, everyone having a discharge, and everyone who is here is the key. Unclean. They are unclean. Verse 3 says, You shall send them away, both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp, outside the camp, outside the camp. That's where Jesus was. He was outside the city as He was passing through Samaria and Galilee where you would have leper colonies. It only makes sense. They would run across these people who were so despised. Send them outside the camp so that they will not defile the camp. See, defile these strong words. Unclean, defiling. Defiling the camp where I, the Lord God, dwell in their midst. God is holy and He could not be among that which was defiled. So this was serious, serious business. The disease of leprosy was the most feared really of all diseases all throughout Old Testament history and rightfully, so just a couple of things more about leprosy. It was first detected or noticed by discoloration of the skin, usually in a very small spot somewhere around the head, but it can be anywhere on the body. Uh, the word leprosy" actually in Leviticus thirteen uh, refers to a lot of different kinds of variations or diseases of leprosy leprosy wasn't just one disease it was an umbrella term that incorporated a lot of skin diseases but they had many common features uh, lepers were considered unclean defiling they were to be isolated by the way the disease of leprosy was highly highly contagious and that's why it was so dangerous it spread rapidly it would spread through contact it would spread through the exchange of uh, just air and breath of one another it exchanged from just contamination by touching of clothing highly, highly contagious and it needed to be uh, cut at the chase, quarantined, cut off immediately, and dealt with severely That's how dangerous it was it was devastating it 's an ancient disease it 's been around it 's one of the longest known diseases that we, we have in humanity it 's been found in mummies even and detected. It, Apparently they say uh, some people think it believe, uh, began in ancient Egypt and spread among the peoples and even God's people. It was the worst feared, as I said, of disease in the Old Testament. Uh, the skin, there would be discoloration and then over time if it spread it would become uh, sometimes scaly or hard or even glossy and because there was a loss of blood underneath the skin from the bacteria that was spreading in the bloodstream. And in the body, and that disease or that bacteria would attack, first and foremost, nerve endings in the body and the entire nervous system until it became systemic and even in the very DNA and the the cells of the entire body. And then it began to do its damage all throughout. But it would be manifest originally, usually just somewhere in the face, uh, and preliminary features would be eyelashes falling out, eyebrows falling out, hair falling out, uh, extremities being uh, sucked into the body, discoloration and Boils and things like that breaking out throughout the entire body and boils and scars that wouldn't heal. Kind of like we, that you have, uh, people with certain blood diseases at times. And also there would, a stench would come with that and sometimes the entire skin would turn pale and sometimes even white. It was a heinous thing. The best that we can determine what was so Scary, frightening, and dangerous, other than the fact that it was highly contagious and a communicable disease about the disease of leprosy. And what made it distinct is the way it attacked the body. Many times diseases are painful. Apparently we think that leprosy was not painful because first and foremost, it attacked the nerves of the body and would deaden the feeling in all of your nerves, especially at the extremities of your body. So literally a leper wouldn't have any feeling in their fingers or in their toes or in their face. So many times there were lepers, even today leprosy they say affects about a million people around the world, many times in just third world countries, but it is common for lepers to have stubs on the end of their hands, no fingers and no toes. Reason being is because they've, because they have no feeling, they rub things very hard over and over again and they don't feel it and they're literally rubbing off and destroying their own Body, rubbing off their fingers, emaciating their own face because they could be scratching their scratching their face. They don't even know it because they can't feel it. And that's what's so dangerous and destructive about this disease because it attacks the nervous system and makes people callous and numb to pain. Totally insensitive to pain. It literally desensitizes a person physically. Anesthetizing, literally, the nervous system of the human body which makes it appropriate that in the Bible, the disease of leprosy became the greatest practical, physical manifestation, metaphor, and example of what sin was like. Because what does sin do? Sin desensitizes people, doesn't it? Sin makes callous. As pain is to the physical body, so guilt is to the soul. It's very important. Someone who has been calloused by sin and calloused by wrong behavior and has a seared conscience. they don't feel guilt as they should. So they can't respond to the prompting and the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God knowing that they're doing wrong. They know that they're doing wrong, but they become callous and desensitized. And as a result, they just live in a spiral of sin that gets worse and worse and worse. And that's why the Bible says that these kind of sinners will go from bad to worse. They become desensitized and they have leprosy of the soul. And sin also, like leprosy, is highly contagious, isn't it? It is highly influential. It is very dangerous. And just like leprosy, sin needs to be cut off at the past, doesn't it? It needs to be isolated. It needs to be quarantined. It needs to be put out away from God's holiness and from His people because it is so destructive, so damaging. That's leprosy. So not only was it this repulsive, hideous, gross damning physical disease it literally represented spiritually that which was reprehensible before god a visible picture of the destruction and the danger of sin in the lives of people as a matter of fact throughout the old testament there are different people who had the disease of leprosy some of their sometimes their names are even given king isaiah and naaman and And others, and many times in the Old Testament, leprosy was a direct judgment from God. Not always, but sometimes it was. Look at Numbers chapter 12. I want you to see this before we go on and finish the rest of our story here. Numbers chapter 12. Moses has been leading these two million Jews out of Egypt, did these great miracles. He's uh, the prophet of God. Aaron is his spokesperson. His older sister Miriam is with them. She's leading the female choir with her tambourine. She gets to a point where she becomes a little jealous of little brother Moses, getting all the attention. So her and Aaron, older brother, older sister, start gossiping about little brother behind his back. Oops. Except when you gossip behind a person's back, you're gossiping in front of God's face. And that's what happened here. Moses just trying to be faithful and carrying on ministry and it says then Miriam, Miriam, this is Moses' older sister and Aaron, Moses' trusted older brother and spokesman, his press agent, supposed to be a faithful guy. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, gossiped about Moses, slandered Moses, mocked Moses. Wow. Why? Because of the Cushite woman whom he had married they didn't like his wife long before your in-law problems Moses had his problems well why didn't they like her well for you know centuries face value it's because of the kind of woman she was she wasn't a pure-blooded jew she was a cushite what's that we think she was from Ethiopia and the population of Ethiopia in that time, we think these people were black-skinned. These were black people. This was not an African-American because America didn't exist. But this is probably a black woman from the land of Cush that Moses married, but she was a believer. Came to embrace the God Yahweh. So this is a legitimate marriage, a marriage blessed by God. Moses and this Cushite woman. So we don't know why... Uh, Miriam and Aaron didn't like her. It was maybe because she was dark-skinned and a black woman. could be that she wasn't a pure-blooded Jew. It could be that Miriam, she was used to having the, all the attention as the main woman among Moses. And now Moses has a new woman, and number one woman in his life, and it's his wife. So they slander and mock Moses behind his back. And then verse 2 says, and they said, Has the Lord, has Yahweh indeed spoken only through Moses? God's been using us too, right, Aaron? Not just using our little brother all the time. Who does he think he is? Why has everybody given him the attention? Has God not spoken through us as well? And Yahweh heard this conversation going on. And Yahweh God is not happy. Verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Moses was the most humble person alive in that day. That is amazing. Suddenly, verse 4, that's a scary suddenly. Suddenly Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you 3 come out to the tent of meeting it could have been an audible voice talk about scary god didn't do that very often we're having a we're having a powwow so the 3 of them came out then yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam told them to come forth this is, i just all i can think about is uh, you know the lion before the wizard of oz but anyway How frightening and scary it was. Suddenly the Lord uh, called them out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, God said, Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant against Moses? How dare you? God is not happy. Well, it's worse than that. Verse 9, God is angry. So the anger of the Lord burned against them. That is the most frightening phrase in the Bible. There's only one thing that appeases the anger of God. And it was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The anger of the Lord burned against Miriam and Aaron, and he departed. And now you've got... Verbal judgment, and now you've got the judgment of silence. And they're just standing there. What's going to happen next? Verse 10, but when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, get this, as white as snow. Miriam, you don't like Moses' black wife? Oh, you like white-skinned people? Poof, there you go. White as snow. Covered in leprosy. She, she's at stage 10 of leprosy. She's at the worst stage. It's highly developed already. It took a long time for leprosy to develop and spread. She's already reached the point where it threatened her life. And as Aaron turned toward Mary, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away. Her body is half eaten away. This is just a horrendous, hideous sight In terms of her condition. But again, notice how it's attached to sin. She needs a mediator. She needs a savior. She needs forgiveness. Oh, do not let her be like a a dead one whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Just the blood gushing out of her sores. Moses cried out to the Lord saying, Oh God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward she may be received again. So God answered Moses' prayer. He showed mercy. Uh, He healed Miriam, and yet still she had to fulfill the law and be sent outside the camp for an entire week for cleansing that she might be examined by the priest. Now go back to Luke 17, and we'll go ahead and finish this story in that context, understanding the history and what God thinks of leprosy and what the people of God thought about leprosy Probably one of the main things to understand the Jewish mind in the days of Jesus is the the horrible stigma that came with leprosy. Samaritans were utterly despised by Jews. But lepers were despised even more by Jews. And yet one of these lepers was a Samaritan who had leprosy. You could not become any more utterly despised than that. You talk about if there was not a candidate the kingdom of heaven, in the mind of a Jew, it was a Samaritan with leprosy. Amazing. But then there's the grace of God. So let's go back and uh, look at the story. So, he entered the village and ten leprous men who stood at a distance met Jesus, so they had probably full-blown leprosy and they knew they had to stay away. By the way, in Leviticus 13, it said, if you had leprosy, you were put outside the camp, you had to shout, unclean, 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 and warn people and let them know. That they had this horrible disease. I used to do that to the girls in the neighborhood when I was growing up. Me and my buddies, our little club when we were in second grade. Anyway, that's a different story. Unclean! And they raised their voices. Get this. It doesn't say they were saying unclean, unclean like they were commanded to in Leviticus 13. They were chanting something else. And that's in verse 13. It says they raised their voices. This was not easy for them to do because at full stage leprosy, because leprosy attacked the nerve endings, the larynx was attacked early on. So that sometimes a leper totally lost their voice. Or if they could speak, it was raspy and it was a grating, garling noise. Sometimes inarticulate. Sometimes totally lost. And it says they raised their voices. Can you imagine? the struggle to do that, seeing Jesus at a distance to make sure that they got His attention that He heard them, that He didn't pass them by and they cried out, these ten men, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And I guarantee it didn't sound that clear or that pleasant. I mean, there's so many questions we could ask here. How in the world did they know that this was Jesus? Did they ever interact with Jesus? I mean, Jesus just passed through. He just entered the town. How did they even know He was coming? Anyway, His reputation had been all throughout the, the nation of Israel for three years because of the massive miracles that he did in Galilee. And maybe it was that Samaritan woman, the, one of the first people that he revealed his Messiahship to, that faithful Samaritan woman who went out to be an evangelist for probably the entire area of Samaria. Is this not the Messiah? Is this not the Christ? And no doubt stories of how lepers had been healed and they knew this was their only chance and last chance and recognized Jesus probably by his entourage of apostles, at least that were with him, And they identify Him and cry out to Him, Master, they got His name down right, Jesus, Savior. And then Master, that unique term. The one who's in authority, the one who is in charge, the one who can help us. And they admit their helplessness, have mercy on us. They were pleading out to the only one that they thought could change their dire situation. Have mercy on us. This was a common cry throughout the Gospels of somebody who wanted a miracle from Jesus. Have mercy on us. Heal us, deliver us, comfort us, save us. That's what's what, what they're saying. So that's Jesus who is sovereign, hearing their providential declaration. Let's go on to the next verse, fourteen. Jesus is compassionate. So Jesus is sovereign, and Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. Jesus came to the sick, not the healed, not the righteous. To the lowly, to the low lowlifes, to the scum of the earth. To those who needed him most. That's who he came to. Great compassion. His gut hurt on behalf of sinners. His gut hurt on behalf of those who were ostracized and nice. That was the heart of Jesus. He was a savior of compassion. And you see that here. When he saw them, he acted. When he saw them, he recognized them. When he saw them, he didn't pass them by. When he saw them, he didn't dismiss them. And when he saw them, he didn't run from them like most people would do from a leper. When He saw them, He engaged them. When He saw them, He took action. That is the blessed Savior. Aren't you glad if you are saved by Jesus that when He saw you, the pathetic, lowly sinner that you are and that I was, that He took action? To reach out with the truth of the Gospel, to send His Spirit, to woo us to Himself, to embrace us like a despicable, hideous leper of the soul? That's Jesus. He is compassionate and provides a miraculous restoration. Let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, When he saw them, he said to them, go. That's kind of interesting, go. Because in Luke chapter 5, earlier in the book, he saw a leper and he went towards the leper. He went to the leper, drew near to the leper and did the unthinkable. He touched the leper. Rule number one, what you don't do to a leper, touch them. What did Jesus do? He touched the leper instantaneously healed. This is totally different. Uh, He doesn't go towards them. He is at a distance and he probably yells or screams, go! He doesn't say, go and be healed. He says, go and show yourselves to the priests. What in the world? That's weird. And there's a lot of confusion in that statement too, the priests, because we know one of these guys was a Samaritan who didn't worship in Jerusalem. He worshiped at Mount Gerizim at a false temple with false priests and false sacrifices with a compromised Bible, probably the rest of these guys were Jews. And Jews here mixing with Samaritans because they lost all identity in terms of their nationality because the only thing that identified them now is they were despicable lepers, and so now they're getting along as one. And then when Jesus says, go to the priests, well, is it the Jewish priests in Jerusalem? That's a far way away, or is it to the priests in Gerizim? Well, according to the Bible and where Jesus would be from, it is go to the priests in Jerusalem in light of Leviticus 13 and 14, which Jesus was familiar with because he was a teacher of the Old Testament. He was a rabbi. He was the master of the scriptures. He wrote the Bible. And he knows that refrain in Leviticus 13. Go to the priest. Go to the priest. Go to the priest. Because if you get healed, even if you were healed of your leprosy, you needed the priest to come examine you to give you a clean bill of health, even after at least a week of isolation. So what is what is Jesus doing here? He is affirming and supporting the Mosaic Law. He is affirming the Old Testament. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the Law of Moses. I came to fulfill the Law of Moses. I came to fulfill the Old Testament. That is exactly what Jesus is doing. He is complying with every letter and spirit of the Mosaic Law until His death and resurrection fulfills it all. He is the ultimate consummate Jew. Christianity is not a defective religion that abandoned its historic Judaism. It's the fulfillment of it. And Jesus' is prime example, number one, when He saw them, He said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, and here's the miracle, and as they were going, they were cleansed. They were cleansed, totally healed, totally clean, totally, categorically, instantaneously, immediately, and get this, invis- and visibly healed. Empirically healed, visibly healed. The Reason I emphasize visibly healed is because I don't know if you've seen uh, faith healers today, but, but I have. They're on TV all the time. So-called faith healers in the name of Jesus. Somebody here got a lower back pain. Everybody should probably be raising their hand. But anyway, I I, I feel Jesus uh, a warm sensation on your lower back pain, and and Jesus just healed you. Boom. How can you examine that kind of a miracle? You can't. It's not objective. It's not empir- empirical. Jesus didn't do miracles like that. He did miracles like this. Leprosy having reached this level, everybody could see it, identify it, and notice. All the spectators standing around watching. Can you imagine His apostles watching these ten guys turn around, walking up, heading to the temple, and just in in a very moment, boom, totally healed of all of their leprosy instantaneously. What a shock that would be. So it could be validated and verified objectively. This was a bona fide, supernatural, unbelievable, unprecedented miracle that Jesus had just performed. And notice the lack of fanfare and hoopla going on here regarding the miracle. It's just, go and tell the priest. And it says, while they're going, they were healed on their way. I wonder if some of these guys even knew that they were healed while they're walking. Because it says in verse 14, uh, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed, totally healed it doesn't say there was lightning or there were angels check this miracle out they were healed how low-key is that it's amazing but that's who jesus is he's god he does miracles and he does miracles just like this so jesus is sovereign jesus is compassionate as he responds to these despised lepers and by the way it doesn't say that they were saved he didn't reach out to them because uh, they deserved it or because they earned it or because they were Jews or because they were believers or they were faithful. There were no conditions for doing this miracle other than they may have exercised some faith that... Jesus recognized because he did say, go and tell the priest. And apparently they turned around and started walking towards the priest. That didn't mean they had saving faith, but they had enough faith. Knowing that Jesus was master, the one in charge, have mercy on us. He gave us an order. We will do it. Let's see what happens. Who knows? Some of them may have been doubting. Okay, well, let's see. Might as well. We've tried everything else. Turn around, start. Well, the other nine guys are going. I guess I'll go. I don't want to look like a doubter. And they all start going and poof. Every one of them was Healed. Absolutely amazing. It's not contingent upon us. Some of these faith healers say, well, in order to get healed, you've got to truly believe. You've got to really muster up that faith. You've got to believe, it or else you won't get your prayer answered. But thinking, well, how'd that work with Lazarus, who was dead for four days? What kind of faith did he muster up? Uh none. It was all the sovereign initiative of Jesus Christ Himself and His grace and mercy. That's also true here. So Jesus is sovereign, Jesus is worthy, Jesus is. Oh, sorry, Jesus is sovereign, Jesus is compassionate, and then Jesus is worthy. Look at verse 15 and 16. These ten men get healed. They're all heading towards the priest. They all know the Old Testament. They know the law of Moses. Even the Samaritan knows the law of Moses in Leviticus 13. They know this is appropriate. This is what you do. They're probably on their way thinking of restoration. Oh, I can walk. I, can, I have feeling. Oh, I can see my wife and my family again. I can go back to my job. And it's probably just consumed with self, which makes sense because this is an amazing miracle. But one out of these ten isn't consumed with self. He's not self-absorbed. He has the right focus and priority, and that's verse fifteen. Now, one of them—that's see—it's being emphasized. One of them. You just that echoes the words of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount: "That few there few there be that find it. Narrow is the way." Not just one of them. Just one out of the ten. It's really disappointing. It's, I mean, it's amazing and disappointing at the same time. Now, one of the ten when he saw that he had been healed. So here he is walking along and he just realizes, wow. He's overwhelmed. He's healed. Verse 14, Jesus said, be cleansed, which meant be healed, which was the mercy that God showed on him. He turned back. He turned back in the middle of his walk back towards Jesus, back towards the one who healed him. Yes, he knew that Jesus was healer, but he also suspected that Jesus was more than healer. Jesus was Something greater than just a physical healer. Who is he? He knows that Jesus is Redeemer. That's why he says at the end of verse 15, turning back, glorifying God. Get this with a loud voice. Remember when he had leprosy, probably couldn't even talk or had this raspy, nasty, dying voice attacking his larynx. And now it says he literally screams out with a mega voice. How annoying. Some people might think that's be. What is that man doing? What is he screaming? What is he? This is a man who is overwhelmed with the love and the mercy of God and he's totally uninhibited at how he's going to show praise and adoration to his Savior God and his Lord Jesus. He doesn't care who's looking, who's listening. Screams it out. Goes back to Jesus. More uninhibited worship, verse 16. He falls on his face. He doesn't care what people think who are watching, falling on his face, and he falls at the face of Jesus. Falling on his face is an act of worship that is clear all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the Bible. When you fall on your face, you are—that that is an act of homage and worship to God and God alone. And this Samaritan knew the Old Testament. He knew that only God, only Yahweh, was to be worshipped. Anything else was illegitimate idolatry, worthy of stoning to death. This is one of the greatest testimonies in the New Testament, that Jesus is god and although this man's theology wasn't fully developed he knew he knew that jesus was more than a healer jesus was redeemer god worked through jesus to do this amazing miracle falls on his face falls at his feet giving thanks present, continually praising and giving thanks to jesus the one who deserved it giving thanks to jesus giving thanks to jesus giving thanks to, jesus, giving thanks to you know that should be the life of a christian not for your leprosy that got healed, but the leprosy of your soul and the leprosy of my soul that has been forgiven and forgiven and forgiven. And you probably had some leprosy get forgiven this week if you're like me. Giving thanks to Jesus, giving thanks to Jesus, giving thanks to Jesus. That's what we're going to do with communion in just a minute. We're going to give thanks to Jesus if you are a Christian for the leprosy of your soul that he has forgiven by his grace and mercy at his initiative. Giving thanks so it's kind of interesting. Where are these other nine? Well, these other nine, they're going back to the temple. Well, they're just obeying Jesus. Jesus said, go see the priest. So they're going to go to the temple. Who's at the temple? Well, the Jews believe that God resided at the temple. The Samaritans believe that God resided in their temple. And here this guy knows, uh, actually, God resides about 50 feet away of me in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the tabernacle of God. That's what John 1 says. God literally tabernacled among us in His very body and presence. He's not in a building. He is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to think they're going to be in the presence of God in the temple. He is in the presence of God at the feet of Jesus. It's amazing contrast. And then kind of the crescendo at the end of verse 16. Get this. There's only one that had the right priority. There's only one that recognized who Jesus was more than a healer. There's only one that recognized that Jesus was worthy of thanksgiving, of worship, of adoration, of verbal praise. There was one with God. There was God himself, the one who can heal. And at the end of verse 16 it says, And he was, get this, he was a Samaritan a Samaritan, the most despised and despicable of all the races according to the Jews. The Jews, the people of God. The Jews, the the people of the promise. The ones that should have known, the Jews. They should have known who Jesus was. But he came to his own and his own received him not, says John chapter 1. And here's one who wasn't their own, a Samaritan, a half read, a Gentile, a mongrel, a non-Jew, He was a Samaritan. He was a Samaritan. Jesus is sovereign. He is compassionate towards sinners. He is worthy of adoration and praise. And then finally, number four, Jesus is Savior. This Samaritan who came back to give thanks, who had the right priorities, he wasn't being disobedient. Jesus said, go, go to the priest." company was going to go to the priest but he's just like you know what this jesus needs to be praised jesus needs to be given recognition it's also ironic at the end of jesus ministry who despised jesus more than anybody at the end of his ministry it was the priest who was responsible for the the death of jesus christ it was the priest who was responsible for coordinating all these false six trials against jesus condemning him to death it was the priest's Who undermined Jesus' ministry more than anybody else? It was the priest. And what does Jesus do? He affirms the legitimacy of the priest. Go see the priest. Go see the priest. That's what the Bible says. Go see the priest. They need to do their job. He honors their ministry. It's also rebuked because when these nine guys and this tenth guy eventually goes back to the priest and they say, we are lepers, remember me? And no doubt the priest will have to say, yeah, I remember you. You were, you did have leprosy. I thought you were going to die. And wow, you got healed. Who did, who did it? And can you imagine what they'd be thinking when they said, Jesus of Nazareth did it? And these priests would have to acknowledge, wow, that Jesus that we despise, he did this miracle. And they would have to publicly acknowledge and legitimize the ministry of Jesus as the Messiah who came to heal lepers. Just like the Old Testament said. Just amazing irony. Verse 17, Then Jesus answered and said, "Where?" And he's, so he's talking to the one leper there who's at his feet and also probably his apostles that are sit around him. Where Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? These are rhetorical questions. They have an implied answer. In other words, Jesus is saying, Wow, all ten, all ten of those guys should be here at my feet. Why is it just this one? All ten should be thankful, giving adoration. And not at my feet, but really giving praise to God. Jesus is deflecting all glory to the Father. They should be praising God. They should be praising the Father. Not just one, but all ten. Jesus answered, were there not ten, but the nine, where are they? Verse 18, was no one found who returned to give glory to God, that's to the Father, except this foreigner. And there's another amazing term because this term is only used here in the Bible. And it is believed that this very word was plastered on the temple wall. No foreigners allowed. This word foreigner kept you from access into the temple. They weren't allowed in the temple. They didn't have access to God. This foreigner, this outcast. I- ironic, verse 19, and Jesus said to him, stand up, stand up. And get this, he says, and go. Go where? Go to the priests. Finish the mission. Follow through with my original command. Do what the Bible says. Fulfill the Mosaic law. Honor God and His Word. Be a public testimony for me. Go. Your faith, His faith in jesus and who jesus is that jesus is more than healer jesus is also redeemer jesus deserves worship jesus deserves praise jesus is equal with god that's what he means that faith that was given to him by god in light of the knowledge he was given to by god in divine revelation he says your faith get this has saved you it's not made you well this exact same phrase is used in Luke 750, exact same phrase, and there it says what it should say: "Your faith has saved you." Sozo, the word for salvation. This isn't talking about physical healing. This is talking about salvation of the soul, healing of the soul. Not only did you get healed physically from leprosy, you also, my friend, because your faith in me as the savior. And showing that and expressing that through worship, your soul has been healed. Your soul has been saved. You are born again. You're a believer. And your faith has done it. It is by grace, through faith, the faith that God has given us, not by our works, that we shall be saved. And so Jesus is the one who saves. He pronounces salvation. He initiates salvation. He declares salvation. And somehow in a mystery and a miracle, He uses human faith in the process of salvation and faith itself being the very gift of God. So that is our great Lord Jesus. And so now as we go to the Lord's table, if you're a believer, I just invite you to have communion uh, this morning or this afternoon. And as we come up, uh, half of you will come up this way and then the other half can go to the back and grab the cup and grab the bread. And while you're sitting and waiting for us, just if you're a Christian, just focus on your glorious Lord Jesus. In light of all these great truths that are revealed in the Bible and remind us of that Jesus is the sovereign one. Jesus is the compassionate one. He is the one that restores. He is worthy of worship. And we have that great privilege today. And He is the one and only Savior. Our Lord Jesus. I want to read one phrase out of 1 Corinthians 11. Just reminding us of what it is we're supposed to be doing when we take communion together as a church body little phrase what are you doing when you take communion well here's what paul said in first corinthians eleven twenty six: you proclaim the lord's death that's what we do when we're taking communion and we're sitting there and we're meditating we are proclaiming the lord's death and, and all that that means that means jesus's life his death his sacrificial substitutionary death that he died on our behalf as our substitute as he was punished by the father on the cross for our sins And all of our sins were cast on Him on the cross. Then He was buried and He rose again from the dead. He ascended on high and He reigns on high as the high priest and the Savior of the world. And He will come again someday. He reigns as Lord of heaven. So everything that it means about Jesus' death and what it accomplished for sinners, that's what we proclaim. Proclaim means to yell it out, to celebrate it, to make it known, to make it public, to remember it, to rejoice. This is all good news. Communion is not bad news. Communion is good news when we take it at the Lord's table. So privately in your own heart, be proclaiming the Lord's death, not on everybody else's behalf, but on your very own. And just have sweet, intimate fellowship with your precious Lord and Savior as we take communion together. Jesus said, do this in his memory. Let's eat and drink together. You can stay seated while I... I close this in prayer. Father, thank You for this day, the time of fellowship You've given us with Your people, the saints, with Your body, the church. Thank You for so many blessings and gifts You've given us. um, The treasure of Your Word that tells us Your very thoughts and reveals to us real, life-changing history. Thank You for this wonderful story. That we're reminded of, of who Jesus is, how awesome the Lord Jesus is. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being a personal Savior of sinners, compassionate, loving, holy. Thank you for allowing us to tangibly participate and be reminded of what you did on our behalf as we proclaim your death, your resurrection, your coming again. Today, who you are as the great high priest, we give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.